All right, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. The tag for today's message is answering the call. Answering the call. Mark 1, verse 14 through 20, beginning in verse 14, the Bible says, Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when they had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship, with the hired servants and went after him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and then we will dive into our message. Again, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. As we open up the pages of Scripture, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a word, Lord, that is sufficient for all of our needs. That is the very words of God that is breathed by the Spirit, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we dive into the message this morning, that you would hide me behind the cross. I pray that Jesus would be big, that you would challenge us and convict us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would give me freedom in the pulpit. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you, that they would come to a saving knowledge of you. That if there's anybody here this morning that has gotten away from you, that they would turn back to a devotion and commitment towards you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would just bless us and meet with us and edify us here this morning through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. If anybody in here keeps up with college football, then you kind of know the buzz that is going on with Colorado's football team. Really, even if you don't keep up with college football, if you keep up with sports in general, you you for sure have heard something in the past couple weeks about Colorado football. Colorado football was a team that back in the 80s and 90s used to be a perennial powerhouse. They won a national championship. They always had a really solid team, a good record. Yet for the past decade or so, Colorado has been the bottom of the barrel. They have been the doormat. You know, Colorado is that team when you look at your schedule and you're like, oh, that's a guaranteed win right there. So last year, Colorado went 1-11. and And so Colorado, being a a big brand and a once powerhouse, their AD, their athletic department and director said, we got to do something about this. And so last year, they began looking for a new coach. And the coach that they landed on was primetime Deion Sanders. Now, again, if you don't know much about football, Deion Sanders is a Hall of Fame football player. He's perhaps the greatest athlete, maybe even to play 
football, but definitely the greatest cornerback to ever play football, both in college and in the NFL. So bringing in Dion, this prominent person, already brought a lot of buzz to Colorado this past offseason. Everybody was watching and seeing, you know, what is Dion going to do with this team? But then as the season started a couple of weeks ago, they really shocked the world. This team that went 1-11 last year began their first game of the season against TCU, which went to the national championship last year. And Dion took this 1-11 Colorado team and flipped it and transformed it. And in their first game, they beat TCU. And they started the season 3-0. Now, yesterday, they got a little bit of a reminder of who they are when they played Oregon. But to go from 1-11 last year to now start the season 3-1, this once-forgotten Colorado team has quickly became a fan favorite. There's a lot of people that are following Colorado football right now. I'm, I'm, I'm one of them, all right? I, I was watching the news, uh, not, not the news, ESPN um, last week. And so last week, Colorado played Colorado State. It was a 11 p.m. game for us since their Western time. And the game didn't end until 2.30 in the morning. Yet ESPN reported that the Colorado-Colorado State game was the most watched late-time, late-night football game that has ever been on ESPN. You know, it's always funny watching teams that have these quick rises to the top because all of a sudden, they have a lot of fans. Right now, the question is, what kind of fans are they? You know, we follow Colorado football, but what does that mean? Are we just fair weather fans? If they lose the rest of the season, are we going to quickly forget about them? Or have they built up a group of committed followers that are going to stick with Colorado through the thick and thin? But even as we think about what it means to follow a sports team, I want to redirect our minds this morning and ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? This is a question that, honestly, I don't think we often really grapple with and ask ourselves. I guarantee that if I was to go around the room and ask each and every person, what does it mean to follow Jesus, that even though I may get some of the same answers, everybody would probably have a little bit different of idea of what it looks like to follow Christ. But I believe that this question is a question that demands an answer. So as we look at our text this morning, what we find is Jesus calling his first four disciples during his public ministry. And in Jesus' call to follow him, there are some truths that we will find about what a true follower of Christ looks like. Listen, the call to follow Jesus is a call to discipleship. This word discipleship and being a disciple are words that we often throw around in Christian spaces, but then again, the question is, what exactly is a disciple? The standard definition at the basis of being a disciple is someone who adheres to the teachings of another. A disciple is somebody who follows and learns from another person. It refers to someone who takes up the ways of someone else. And applied to Jesus, a disciple then becomes someone who learns 
from Jesus to then live like him. Someone who, because of God's awakening grace in their life, conforms his or her words and ways to the words and ways of Jesus Christ. As you survey the New Testament, you will find that fundamentally a disciple of Jesus is three things. A disciple is a worshiper, a disciple is a servant, and a disciple is a witness. So as we look at our text this morning, what I want to submit to you is that the call to follow Jesus, the call to be a disciple, is a call to action and participation in gospel ministry. As you step into verse 14 of Mark's gospel, you're introduced to the beginning of Jesus's Galilean ministry. Verse 14 says, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee. Well, Mark doesn't give us the space of times and the things that happened between verse 13 at Jesus's temptation and verse 14 at the beginning of Jesus's Galilean ministry, as you survey the rest of the Gospels, the other Gospel writers fill in some of the gaps and the blanks of what has happened between verse 13 and verse 14 of Mark's Gospel. Between Jesus's temptation and John's imprisonment in verse 14, you'll find that Jesus has gone to the wedding in Cana and already turned water into wine. Jesus has already gone and cleansed the temple for the first time. Jesus has already had his conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. He's met with the Samaritan lady at the well, among many other wonders and works. But as Mark picks up in verse 14, we find Jesus coming back into Galilee, his hometown, his home country, the place where he grew up. And Galilee is the place where then Jesus will spend the majority of his public ministry and do wonders and works and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Verse 15, verse 15 says that Jesus came in. His message was, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. John the Baptist pointed towards the one that would fulfill that time. And Jesus says, now that I am here, now that the Messiah is here, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now you need to repent and believe in the good news and put your faith and trust in me alone. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that we are justified by faith. That word justified means to be made right with God, to be in right standing with God, that the way that we are made right with God is through faith, and it's through faith in the gospel message. But Paul also says that then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And he also says, but how shall they hear if they don't have a preacher? So we're made right with God through faith, and that faith then comes from hearing the gospel proclamation, but gospel proclamation uh, needs people that are telling the message. If people's hearts 
are going to be turned from sin and towards God. It is only going to be through the proclamation of the good news. Jesus comes to Galilee preaching his message to repent. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. And as he comes to Galilee, he then calls others to join him and be a part of his ministry. What a magnificent thought it is that God would use man to fulfill his purposes. Listen, God doesn't need us. The heavens declare his glory and the skies his handiwork. Yet, while God does not need us, God prefers to use each and every one of us here this morning. Verse 16 and 17 says, Now as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. The Sea of Galilee is a beautiful freshwater lake that sits in Israel. It's the largest body of water in all of Israel, and it was a lake that was known for its fishing. Josephus, a Jewish historian during the days of Jesus, said that there would be up to 330 boats on this, this relatively small body of water that would be fishing daily. And among those who fished this lake for their livelihood were Andrew and his brother Simon, or we may know him as Peter. As we look at our text this morning, the first thing we notice is that Jesus calls ordinary people to follow him. Jesus calls ordinary people to follow him. One would think that in putting together a team to share the greatest news the world has ever known, that Jesus would be like Nick Fury putting together an Avengers-esque team of gospel witnesses. One would think that as God came to earth in the form of man and began to preach the message of the gospel, the message of the Messiah spreading the good news that maybe perhaps he would turn to the religious leaders of the day. Maybe you would think that Jesus would go to the temple and Jesus would go to the synagogues. These rabbis already had religious influence. They already had a following of people that were listening to them and it would make sense for Jesus to go to them and and have them. They were already taught in the scriptures. They could point from the Old Testament prophecy towards Jesus, but he didn't. And then maybe one would think, well, if he didn't go to the rabbis and the teachers, maybe Jesus would go to the politicians. Maybe Jesus would go to those with power and with influence, those who could get his message out there quickly and widely, those who could then protect him as he begins to be persecuted and preach his message. But Jesus instead chooses to go to a group of ordinary people. He begins to recruit his disciples by going to the lake and calling on fishermen. 
fisherman, that in choosing to who he chose to proclaim his extraordinary message, he chose ordinary people doing ordinary work. Can you picture them? Blue-collar guys, probably a little rough around the edges, gruff and rugged. No doubt they were probably pretty dirty. I mean, they spent their lives working out on the sea, doing hard work, probably sweaty and smelly. Besides the sweat that would have made them smell, they're surrounded by fish. They're fishing. Their boats are full of fish. They're at the fish market. And this is the group of people that Jesus chooses and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's not who we would think that Jesus would choose. It's not who I would choose if I had a message to spread. If I had a message to spread, I probably wouldn't go down to the plumber's store and try to get a group of plumbers together and say, hey, listen, I need you to help me spread this message. You know, as we look at Jesus' call to these fishermen, I love the fact that Jesus came to them. Jesus took the initiative. I can't help but think that maybe part of the reason why Jesus came to them is that these group of fishermen never in a million years would have thought that they could be used by the Messiah. They never would have thought that they could be a part of what Jesus was doing. And so Jesus comes to them and says, follow me. So this is what separates the gospel This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Religion tells you to clean yourself up and go to God. But the gospel tells us that God comes to us as we are. As we look at those that Jesus calls, it should be a comfort to us to know that Jesus uses ordinary people. Most of us here this morning will never be masters of religion. We'll never be big time preachers and evangelists. We'll never be millionaires and have a lot of financial influence. We'll never be politicians or government leaders and have political influence. Yet we can all be used by and useful to God. Being a disciple of Christ is not about your pedigree. Being a disciple of Christ is not about your background. It's not about what you have to offer, but rather being a disciple of Christ is about your calling. God doesn't call the prepared. He prepares the called. You know, one of the biggest lies that Satan will begin to put into your head is that you cannot be used by God. Satan will look at you, he'll say, look at your past. Look at who you once were. Look at all the things that you did. You really think that God can use you? Satan will point, look at you, and he'll whisper in your ear, think about all of your deficiencies and all of your flaws. You can't speak in front of people, you stutter, you have anxiety, and he'll tell you why God cannot use you. But can I encourage you this morning that if Jesus can use fishermen from Galilee, then he can use you. Abraham was old. 
Elijah was suicidal. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Samson was a womanizer. Noah was a drunk. Do I need to keep on going? David was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. Peter denied Christ three times. Paul persecuted the church. And yet every last one of them was used in a great and mighty way by the Lord. Listen, you don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be powerful. All that you have to be is willing to respond when he calls. If you feel as if you have nothing to offer the Lord, you're exactly the person that God wants to use. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. You know, when God uses a stutterer to preach, when he uses a recovering addict to give hope to people, when he uses an ex-adulterer to lead a small group, God is the one that gets the glory. Listen, if you've been in the background watching Jesus from a distance, can I encourage you to stop being a spectator and become a participant knowing that Jesus uses ordinary people. Jesus calls ordinary people, but he calls them for an extraordinary purpose. Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, follow me. The call to follow me is the heart of New Testament discipleship. It is a call that is both personal and is a call that is extended by Jesus to each and every person that sits in here this morning. Jesus did not call us to sit in the background and watch everyone else work, but rather Jesus calls us individually to the front lines. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. The ultimate purpose of Jesus' calling, of his making disciples and using man is for the purpose of evangelism to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not merely use the imagery of fishing for men as a sort of play on words in light of their vocation, but rather in the Old Testament, you'll see that God fishes for people. And in texts where it talks about God fishing for people, it's usually in the context of divine judgment. Jeremiah 16 says, Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. Amos 4.2 says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks. The summons to be a fisher of men is the call to the prophetic duty of gathering men and 
woman in view of the forthcoming judgment of God. Jesus' first call to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, is the exact same as his last call to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the call to share the good news of the gospel in hopes of saving people from eternal condemnation. This fundamental truth is of utmost importance for us as Christians because it puts into perspective all that we do. All of our ministries, all of our outreaches, all of our community events are all focused around the idea of fishing for men, of snatching people from the pits of hell. Jesus' instruction reminds us that as disciples, God calls us to reach people, not change culture. God calls for us to you, for, for, he calls for us to save souls, not reform society. Our purpose as Christians is to share the good news of the gospel. But sadly, we live in a society today where we are more concerned, churches and Christians on both sides of the aisle, are more concerned about changing culture than we are reaching people. Oh, if only... We elect the right people in office. Oh, if we just get the Bible and prayer back in the schools. If we can just enact the right laws and regulations. Then we believe we are fulfilling our purpose as Christians. May I suggest to you this morning that often we put the cart before the horse. If we ever want a Christ-honoring culture, there first has to be a Christ-filled people. Listen, if you want to change culture, then reach those around you. If you want to change culture, then we need to be reaching our neighbors. We need to be reaching our family. We need to be reaching our friends. We need to be reaching the children in the school. And then when they are redeemed by the glorious gospel and the Holy Spirit indwells them and their lives are transformed and changed, then culture will change. We have to remain on mission. As we look at our text in Jesus called to his disciples, we are reminded that as followers of Christ, we're to tell people of the rescuing, redeeming power of the gospel. I'm reminded of the words penned by Fanny Crosby in her hymn, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep over the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. As we then continue in our text, we find that when Jesus calls, discipleship demands devotion. Look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18 says, And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were also in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father 
Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. As Jesus calls out to Andrew and Simon Peter and then shortly after James and John, there is an urgency about them as they immediately left behind all that they knew for an uncertain future with Jesus. They didn't look at Jesus and say, Jesus, where are we going? Jesus, what do you need us to do? They didn't know about all the works and the wonders that Jesus would continue to do in his ministry. They didn't know about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't know that they would be used to begin the church. All they knew was that Jesus was different, that the message he was proclaiming was life-changing, and they wanted to be apart. As we look at this calling, one thing to note is that this is not the first time that Andrew and Simon Peter have met Jesus. In the book of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, I'm going to read you a section. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35 says, Again the next day after John stood, this is talking about John the Baptist. After John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus... As he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt in a boat with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. As John the Baptist was in the wilderness preaching his message of repentance. Andrew heard about what was going on, and Andrew went and began to follow John the Baptist. And one day as Andrew is standing with John the Baptist, Jesus walks by, and John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And in pointing from himself towards Jesus, these two men that were following John then begin to follow Jesus. Not in the sense of being committed, but rather out of curiosity. Who is this man that John has pointed us towards? After following Jesus for the day, Andrew returns home. And he goes to his brother, Simon Peter, and he says, I have met the Messiah. And he takes Simon Peter back to meet Jesus. When Andrew went up to Jesus, he inquired about the Messiah, and Jesus said to Andrew, come and see. Come and see. And no doubt as Jesus went from Judea to Samaria performing miracles, that space of time between verse 13 and verse 14, Andrew and Peter were still following him. They were coming and seeing what this man was all about. They were watching from a distance. 
They were interested in the work and words of Jesus, but not yet involved. So now as Jesus comes and personally calls for them to follow him and partake in his ministry, they ask no questions. And immediately they follow Christ. In their urgency to follow Jesus, they left everything behind. Andrew and Simon left behind their vocation. They left behind their way of making a living. They left behind their nets and by faith followed Christ. James and John not only left behind their livelihood, but they left behind their tradition and their family. As the Bible says, they left their father. And following Jesus, their priorities and devotions changed. The disciples didn't say, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me pack up my fishing poles and my nets, and can I bring my father along? But rather, as Jesus called to them, they forsook the things that had them tied back and began to follow Christ. And what I want to say to, you, to some of you this morning is that to follow Jesus, you've got to leave some things behind. To follow Jesus, you've got to leave some things behind. Jesus requires devotion. Luke 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. When it comes to following Jesus, there is no middle of the road. There's no straddling the fence. Jesus says either you're in or you're out. Either Jesus is Lord or he's not. Jesus has to be greater than everything in your life. Listen, when Jesus calls you to follow him, Jesus has to be greater than your relationships. He's got to be greater than those friends that are keeping you from following him wholeheartedly. He's got to be greater than, greater than your family members that make fun of you because of your devotion to Christ. He's got to be greater than your sports ministries. He's got to be greater than your jobs and your vocations. We live in a day and age where it's okay to follow Jesus. Everybody, I'm not going to say everybody, but a lot of people want to follow Jesus until we're inconvenienced. That I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't interrupt my life. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't require something from me that I don't want to offer. Can I tell you this morning that the rhythms of life and our calendars should not dictate what it looks like to follow Jesus, but rather following Jesus should dictate what our calendars look like. Following Jesus should look like what our rhythms of life look like.
as we look at this passage and this call to follow me, I believe there is great clarity given to what it means to be a disciple. Our call as followers of Jesus is not to be Christians, but rather to be disciples. Because the thing is, you can fake being a Christian. You cannot fake being a disciple. A disciple of Jesus Christ is nothing but a sinner who has been saved by God's amazing grace and has put their faith in the only one that can save us from our sin, who has been redeemed and rescued from the penalty of sin and in turn then commits to a devoted following of Jesus in participation in gospel ministry. So the question is, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? Since 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. He looked down on man and his sin and confusion and condemnation and decided that he had to do something about it. He came to earth, was born in a manger. The Son of God took on human flesh. He lived a perfect and sinless life, yet he was despised and rejected by men, and he was ultimately led as a lamb to the slaughter, fulfilling the perfect plans of God. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He was hung high and stretched wide. He had hands put in his hands, or he had nails put in his hands and in his feet. He had a crown of thorns placed on his head. A spear drove into his side on the cross. Christ bore the wrath of God for all of sin, past, present, future. On the cross, Christ willingly died the death that we deserve in our place, in your place, so that you could live the life that he had earned, so that you could have eternal fellowship with God. On the cross, Jesus' death defeated sin. But then after laying in a borrowed tomb for three days, early Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave. And his resurrection defeated death, hell, and the grave, providing a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, a way for us to be reconciled back to the Father, a way for us to... Be one with a holy, loving God. And now today, Jesus beckons every last person that is in here. Follow me. Every head bow and eyes closed. Head bow and eyes closed. Listen, if you are here this morning, and you don't know Christ as Savior, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, alone. You've never heeded the call by Jesus to follow him. I just want you to raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to pray for you and help you and show you how the Bible can show you how you can know that heaven's your home and Christ is your Savior. If that's you, just slip your hand up real quick. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, I thank you for these precious people that you have brought here this morning, God. God, I pray that as we go our separate ways, that the message this morning would convict and challenge us. Lord, that if we've gotten away from a devotion to you, if we've lost sight of what our purpose is as disciples, that you would renew that in us. Lord, that you would kindle a fire in our souls, that we would be on fire for you and wanting to tell others about your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Lord, and that we are willing to forsake things that get in the way of us passionately following you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us the rest of our time together as we sing again and pray that you would be glorified, exalted. Lord, we thank you for the cross and we thank you for salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This time, can I have the worship team come forward? This is a time for us to respond to the message. So as you can pray in your seat, you can come forward and pray. If you need somebody to talk with, there's people you can talk with, but just take a moment and just respond. If God has spoke to you, there's something you need to get right, now's the time to get it right. Take a few moments, a few moments and respond.